This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Sanj Kakar, an orthopedic surgeon with a specialist interest in hand and wrist disorders at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Today, our discussion is centered on fragility fractures, which are fractures that occur from low energy injuries, such as simply tripping on a curb. They're a sign of underlying osteoporosis and most commonly occur in the wrist, hip, and spine. In fact, it is estimated that worldwide, one in three women and one in five men over the age of 50 will experience osteoporosis fractures in their lifetimes. Joining us today to discuss this is Dr. Anne Kearns, who is a consultant endocrinologist and associate professor within the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Anne, welcome to the show. Morning, Sanj. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. And this is a a topic near and dear to my heart. But before we get into that, I I wanted to just go over some terms that are frequently used, maybe incorrectly, for example, osteoporosis or osteopenia. What is the difference between those technically? Well, technically, they're degrees of severity. Those terms are limited to people over 50. So perchance a premenopausal woman or a man under 50 who has a bone density, we don't talk about it in those terms. And so osteopenia is some thinning below average and osteoporosis is more severe thinning. And it just has to do with the risk of fractures. So that's interesting, as you said, aged over 50, because I hear those terms many times, especially in our younger patients who say that they have osteoporosis. So technically that's incorrect. And so in terms of the causes, can you explain the main causes for osteopenia and osteoporosis and who's at risk? We know that bone density uh, is inherited to some degree. So there is sometimes a family tendency to have thinner bones. Lighter people have thinner bones than heavier people because the bones do respond to mechanical stimuli in terms of bearing weight. We know people with injuries to the spinal cord who are paralyzed or who have a stroke have thinning of the bones from disuse thinning that happens with non-weight bearing. For most of us, it happens with age. For women, it happens after the menopause when we lose the good effects of estrogen on the bones. For men who don't go through menopause like women do, obviously, the thinning is uh, less dramatic at that time. But men do have osteoporosis and they do have changes in bone density with age. And then there's medical problems and certain medications. Amongst the biggest medications that thin the bones are oral steroids, glucocorticoids like prednisone, certain types of medications used to treat breast cancer or treat prostate cancer that lower the sex steroids in men and women also cause bone thinning. So you mentioned, Anne, about certain medications and also mechanical load. So I'm thinking, let's say you have a a younger athlete who's loading their bones all the time, but may have uh, either use of steroids or uh, have an eating disorder. Are they at risk of osteoporosis? Because technically, as you said, it's age over 50, but they're obviously younger than that. So there are some things that happen in young adulthood that can impact your bone density. And For women, it's more obvious if they have an eating disorder because they'll lose their periods. So amenorrhea for an extended time can thin the bones. We don't have quite that kind of indicator for men. So boys do get anorexia. Boys do have problems with sex steroids, but they don't get periods to tell them that. So it's a little harder to understand sometimes for boys. So athletes are at risk, especially women, if they don't have their periods regularly. Anabolic steroids, such as weightlifters and things like that, aren't so much associated with bone thinning, but 
It's not well studied because of the clandestine nature of their use. One of the things I see osteoporosis, for example, or fragility fractures when sadly our patients fall and injure themselves, and that's when they present. But oftentimes it's a silent type of disease. So how should you diagnose this? When should some alarm bells be going off? If I see somebody in clinic in my primary care practice that I should be thinking, well, at least I should screen for this. Right. That's a good question. So anyone uh, at any age probably who needs chronic oral glucocorticoids should have their bone health assessed and lifestyle measures reviewed. All women at age 65 are recommended to have a bone density because that's far enough after the menopause when a certain percentage of them just from natural aging will fall into that category. For men, it's less clear when just by age alone they should have a bone density test. Some professional societies recommend it in all men at age 70. Others are less clear. But I think anyone at any age who has a fragility fracture over age 50 should probably be considered a candidate for screening or at least a discussion. So let's say you don't have a fragility fracture, but you're a woman aged over 65 or a man over aged over 70, and you have one test and it's normal. And we're talking about the bone mineral density test, I'm assuming. Do you then recommend repeating that after a certain period of time or one and done? It's not usually one and done. And the interval between bone density tests, whether it's normal or abnormal, depends on the value of that baseline test. So the closer it is to osteoporosis, the sooner you would remeasure it, but also what we expect to happen. With normal aging and a normal bone density at age 65, the interval to the next one can be long. But if in that time frame a person develops polymyalgia rheumatica, for example, and needs chronic steroids, again, that would necessitate reconsidering when you do the screening. So it's a combination of what the baseline value is and what the expected rate of change. With normal aging, the rate of change is relatively slow. So it kind of then depends at age 65 what happens to you medically and where you are when we screen you. I see. As far as yes. Now you mentioned those baseline values and, and, and when you get these reports, they talk about Z scores and T scores. Can you just explain what they are and how you use those to A, diagnose and B, also follow progress with treatment? It's often confusing. When we talk about bone thinning, the machines use it as a reference, the average bone density of a young woman at her peak. And this is for both men and women. So the T-score is the standard deviations below that peak. Even though we don't measure individuals at their peak, it's that reference. Z-scores are the standard deviations below the average for age. Some machines adjust for weight, but that depends on how the settings are. So that's the difference. When we're talking about young people, we use the Z-scores to talk about they're below expected for age or uh, within the range expected for age. And that's where, again, that age range, we don't use the terms osteopenia and osteoporosis. It's important for everyone to realize that we never tell a patient you have the average bone density of a 90-year-old. We just don't talk about it like that, just like we don't talk about people who are overweight that they have the weight of you know, someone who's much taller than them. We don't talk about it. So I would be cautious about people using it that way. Interesting that you, that the reference is of a healthy woman, and yet that's used for men as well. You would think that you would have a, a standard for a man as well, no? 
Yeah, there was a lot of debate about that at the time, but um, the best data I think about fracture risk came from using that for women. So there wasn't a big need to um, change that. So when you're seeing a patient and you're following them and you're treating them as well, we'll get onto treatment a little bit later. What scores do you use to, to follow the progress of treatment? So to define osteoporosis, the T-score of the hip, either the total region or the femoral neck, those are the only two regions of the hip we look at, the T-score is minus 2.5 or worse. For the spine, we don't look at individual vertebrae, it has to be an average, and the T-score again is minus 2.5. Osteopenia is minus 2.1 to minus 2.4. When we follow it, it's important that the DEXA measurement be performed on the same machine. Just like if you're following your weight and you're looking for small changes, you don't wanna be measuring your weight on different scales. The machines are internally calibrated and each center does their own quality control so that you get the best longitudinal measurements on the same machine at the same center. We look for improvement with medication or at least not decline. How much improved depends on the type of medication you're using. For most oral bisphosphonates, we get in three or four years, maybe a, a five to 7% increase in the spine. So let's talk about treatment then, Anne. Before we talk about medication, there are certain lifestyle changes that patients can do that their physician can recommend. Can you just talk about that a little bit? And part of this goes back to probably risk factors. So people with unhealthy lifestyles to begin with, smokers, people who consume too much alcohol or have other addiction issues have compromised bone health. So of course, we always recommend that tobacco cessation, limiting alcohol to not exceed the recommended amounts. Calcium intake is preferable from diet, but realizing that uh, some people don't tolerate cow's dairy products. So other fortified foods can contain a lot of calcium, especially milk-like things, almond milk, soy milk. Certain orange juices are fortified. Certain breakfast cereals are fortified with calcium. If it's very difficult to get the recommended amount of calcium from your diet, of course, supplements can be used. Vitamin D is made in the skin from sunlight. So especially older people whose skin's not as efficient or who may be using sunscreen to protect their skin or have darker pigmented skin and live in a Northern climate, they may not make enough from sunlight exposure only. So then we recommend vitamin D supplements. We talk about lifestyle changes in that, but there's also risk factors for falls and fall prevention. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that and, and how somebody can help patients at least preventing them from falling? Yeah, I guess the other lifestyle measure I didn't mention is exercise. And we know that has an impact also on falls. We generally recommend weight-bearing exercise, such as walking, because that's safe for most individuals. Falls are always a risk for a fracture. And I often have to counsel quite strongly women about certain activities they shouldn't be doing because it increases the risk of falls. That includes getting up on a stepladder. This is something I've seen and learned from the trauma group I work with that ladders are dangerous, especially for older people, but also ice in the winter, making sure their home is safe, being extra careful, carrying things up and down stairs, the number of people who think they're on the bottom step or down and they miss the last step, especially when they're carrying things. If there's a concern about balance, there are certain exercises, including Tai Chi, that have been shown to help 
but I would do that on the recommendation of your doctor or seeing a physical therapist if they, you think they need a gait aid, such as a cane or a walker. So, and clearly you're an expert in this and there are nuances in terms of medications and which ones to start and how to do it. But just in general, if I get a bone density scan and somebody's osteopenic or even osteoporotic, how do you go down the sort of algorithm of which medications to give? You alluded to calcium and vitamin D, but obviously there's other medications out there as well. And you touched upon bisphosphonates. How do you go through that in terms of what to start and how to follow these patients? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think this is often a challenge for primary care physicians because patients get a lot of negative news about osteoporosis medications, that they cause problems, they cause fractures, they cause problems with the jawbone healing. And I think it's our job as physicians to put that in perspective, that yes, most medications have some risks, but thankfully they are extremely rare. And with maintaining good oral hygiene, not smoking, uh, the risk of that is exceedingly small and the benefits far exceed that. So I think the bisphosphonates are still the go-to medications for most people with uncomplicated, untreated osteoporosis. And that can be oral medications, which can sometimes cause digestive upset or intravenous medications, which are convenient and easy for the patient to tolerate. We have more advanced medications, including medications that are bone building medications, such as the PTH analog therapies or the newest one, romazosumab. But those are probably things that you should refer to a specialist for. I think most primary care physicians should feel comfortable starting a bisphosphonate. And if they start a bisphosphonate, how should they monitor therapy? When should they repeat the bone density scan? Because I thought for bisphosphonates that you, you give them for a certain period of time and then you stop. Yeah, that's a good point to make. That is the only category of medications for which you can give it for a certain amount of time and then take what I call a vacation or a holiday. And I use that term because holidays end, so it might end. Usually the oral bisphosphonates are given for five years. And then depending on what happens and what the bone density is at the end of five years, it may be appropriate to take a time off medication and reassess the bone density again in a couple of years. For IV bisphosphonates, of which I'm talking about zolindronic acid, that one may be given for three to six years, again, depending on the severity. For patients who fracture well on a medication, I think it's important to make sure, especially with an oral bisphosphonate, that they're taking it correctly and consistently. The medications are difficult to be absorbed into the bloodstream, so they have to be taken first thing in the morning when the stomach's completely empty with just plain water and nothing else in the stomach for 30 minutes to an hour, depending on which one you're taking. And also because they're taken either weekly or monthly, adherence to that can be a challenge for some patients. So asking them honestly, I usually say, these medications are sometimes difficult for people to remember to take. So I find a lot of patients are challenged with that. Tell me how that's been going for you. It's important not to appear critical because patients want to do the right thing and you want to know the truth. So asking it in a way that's not judgmental is most effective in my experience. So Anne, given your passion in this field, especially in fragility fracture management and also preventing additional fragility fractures, I know at Mayo Clinic, You've been instrumental, for example, in working with our orthopedic trauma colleagues where patients sustain a hip fracture, for example, or within the hand division, you've helped us with patients who have a distal radius fracture. Can you talk about that sort of service and, and what you're seeing? 
Patients who have a fragility fracture are often overlooked in the shuffle of treating the acute thing. So usually the best uh, outcomes come if there's a process systematically for them to be evaluated. And as you know, Sanji, you and I have worked together on this for years now, and it's not an easy thing. So even patients who are on a medication for osteoporosis need to have a discussion if they have a fracture, just like you would if someone has an MI and they're on a statin, you would remeasure their cholesterol, you would ask yourself, do they need a stronger medication? Are they taking the medication? Are they doing their lifestyle measurements? I look at a fracture in someone with already diagnosed osteoporosis as a time to reassess the current plan. If they've not been treated for osteoporosis, that's the time to think about a discussion in younger patients, 50 to 65, I might measure the bone density. For an 80-year-old woman who's never had a bone density test, who falls in her living room and breaks a hip, I feel comfortable starting a medication without waiting for the bone density results because the likelihood that it's low, either in the osteopenia or osteoporosis range, and the risk of fractures is high. So I can go ahead and start a medication. And that's tremendous information. Is there anything that we missed out that you would like to cover? I think that it's important to know when you should refer to an endocrinologist. And I think that at any time the patient has more questions than you feel comfortable asking. If the patient's bone density is declining despite adherence to a medication, that might necessitate a further evaluation. If they're fracturing while on a good medication, it might be that they need a bone building medication. If they've already had a lot of bisphosphonate and it's not going well, or if they are undergoing certain types of orthopedic procedures, sometimes we like to see them in advance, especially spine surgery. So I think those are the main things to know that we in endocrinology are here for those more advanced things. Usually we can outline a plan and perform an evaluation that will help us decide what to do next. We've been talking about fragility fractures with Dr. Ann Kearns. Thank you as always for your time, Ann. Thank you, Sanj. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and thank you for the privilege of your time.